Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. titled this Prelude to Judgment, and uh, the reason why is because when we get to chapter 16, chapter 16 is is completely, it's the bold judgment is what it's known, for, uh, what it's known as, and uh, so that's why I titled it the Prelude to Judgment, because we're, we're right on the cusp of that. But one of the things I wanted to share with you, and as you've been noticing as we've been going through the book of Revelation, is just how many Old Testament references there are in the Old Testament. Uh, Revelation is such a, it's, it's got a lot of Hebrewness, if you can call it that. Um, it's got so many Old Testament allusions and references that if you don't, if you haven't read the Old Testament and then you just dive into Revelation, it's probably overwhelming. Uh, but if you've, if you've kind of done some of your, you know, homework, maybe you've read something and then go back and see where it's referred to in the Old Testament, you can kind of it kind of brings a, a fuller picture. Um, but not only are there a lot of Old Testament references in the Book of Revelation, but the structure of the Book of Revelation is very Old Testament. It's very OT, <laughs> Old Testament. Um, for example, now I don't know how much you know about. Um, Hebrew literature, but uh, Hebrew poetry, for example, is one of the structures in the Old Testament, and one of the one of the aspects of Hebrew poetry is what's called parallelism. Parallelism are concepts; they're stated and then they're rephrased in order to give a, a more complete understanding. Here's an example on the screen: Psalm 24, verses one and two, and you can see I highlighted the colors of the of the parallelism. It says, "The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness." the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded upon the seas and established it upon the water. So there's a lot of repetition, but it's to give you a fuller picture. Well, there's also in the Old Testament, and I don't know the term. This is parallelism. I don't know the term for this. But in the Old Testament, there's a lot of narratives, stories, you know, and they're chronological narratives. Uh, they're provided, and then uh, the Scripture backs up and gives more detail. It kind of goes through it again. Um, and uh, I'll give you an example. Genesis chapter 1. If you go through the book of Genesis, which we did before we get under Revelation, Genesis chapter 1 is the chronology of the creation, uh, the six days of creation. And you go, that goes all the way through the six days. And, and day six, of course, is when God created the land animals um, and mankind. Then you get to chapter 2. And chapter 2, it starts with mentioning the seventh day, but then it goes back into day six. And it gives more detail regarding the creation of man. That's, that's one of the examples in, in, the, in the Old Testament. Um, in Exodus, Exodus chapter 20 uh, in particular, Moses is given the Ten Commandments. And then we get into Deuteronomy and he repeats the Ten Commandments and he gives more detail and explanation. Um, you know, even in the New Testament, Scriptures does that. For example, the four Gospels. You know, we have four gospel, four chronological uh, chronologies, excuse me, of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's repeated every gospel. But all are given from a slightly different perspective. Uh, and it provides, when you get it all together, it provides a more detailed explanation. And so um, all that to say... The structure of Revelation is not that unique, actually. It's very much like other scripture. 
there's a lot of the narrative, you know, the chronology moves forward and then it stops and you kind of back up and then there's some, some more detail given and then the chronology maybe inches forward a little bit and then it stops. And, and, and we've been doing that as we've been going through the book of Revelation. And if, if you don't understand that and you try to read it from uh, chapter 1 to t- chapter 22 and you think it's all chronological in one order, you can get really confused really quick. So to understand the structure is helpful. Um, The chronological passages in Revelation, they're interrupted by what I call interludes. Another thing of way of thinking of it is parenthetical information. In other words, uh, you know, the chronology goes on and it stops, and then we're given this little little tidbit of information. Um, let me give you an example: uh, the one hundred forty-four thousand. You know, that was the chronology was going on, and all of a sudden it stopped, and now we're we're introduced to the one hundred forty-four thousand. We're introduced to the two witnesses, uh, the tribulation saints, and then all those great signs that John saw in heaven. And in last last week, chapter 14, I mentioned at the beginning, and I don't know if you caught it, but in the beginning, if you were here, I said chapter 14 could almost be considered like a table of contents for the rest of the chapters in the book of Revelation, uh, because it touched on different events that would occur in the remaining chronology that where we're at in, in the book of Re- Revelation. And, and then the chapter ends with a brief description of the battle of Armageddon and the, the great harvest, which, you know, was at the end of the chronology. But, but it was just like little tidbits, little, little glimpses, almost like previews of coming attractions. Well, we get to chapter 15. And chapter 15 is really, I, I would say it's another interlude and not only that but as i title it, it's a prelude uh, to the chronology of revelation which i think starts back up in chapter 16 with the bold judgments um, by the way the chronology is going to stop again after chapter 16 uh, in chapter 14 it talked about it said babylon has fallen babylon has fallen and that's all you're told well when we get to chapter 17 and 18 again it backs up and now we're given some detail about the destruction of Babylon in those two chapters. So we'll see that when we get to those chapters at about 2 o'clock this afternoon. I said, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, hey, chapter 15, verse 1. If you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, feel free to. John writes this. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, Seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. So if you notice, there's another sign that John sees in heaven. You'll recall the first sign that he saw was the woman with the child. And uh, that was in chapter 12. Uh, and the, the, the mother with the child, well, the, well, we know the mother is the nation of Israel and the child was the Christ child. Um, we also saw in chapter 12 the, another great sign, which was the great dragon, which we find out is, is Satan. Well, this is the third of those signs in heaven that John see, sees. And this sign is seven angels having these seven last plagues. This third sign that John sees, other signs that were great signs, this sign he describes as great and marvelous. That word great is the word megas. Or you get mega, you know, megaphone or, or mega millions or whatever, you know, whatever you want to say. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's huge, right? It's big. But it actually means affecting the mind and causing emotion. That's, that's actually the definition of it. Um, 
and then the, the, the marvelous, that word, it, it's, it means to marvel or to wander, you know, to cause marvel or to cause wonder. And so what John is seeing in this sign, this third great sign, it, it's, it's, causing, it's causing an emotion in him, and that emotion is to marvel at what he's seeing. Uh, if you see on the screen here, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen these before. Cumul- okay, I'm going to try to pronounce this again. Cumulonimbus clouds. Um, and, you know, I, I used to call them thunderheads. And those can sometimes get to, I think, about 65,000 feet high in the, in, the, in the air. I mean, they're huge. And one day, I remember a few years back, if you were here in Rochester, maybe you remember it too, um, there was one of those cumulonimbus clouds floating over. It was probably about 1,500 feet up, you know, the, the ceiling. It was flying, or flying. It was floating. <laughs> Pastor Don has seen flying things. No. Um, it was floating above, but so you, you know, you look up about 1,500 feet roughly, and there's this huge cloud, and it was right at the edge, and the sun was shining on it. And I remember coming out of my house and looking up, and it was like you couldn't see the top of the cloud. It just was, it was huge. And my neighbors, they were all coming out and looking at the same thing, and it was just amazing. They even talked about it on the news that, that evening, I remember. But, but seeing that great cloud above me, it, it stirred up an emotion in me. I, I was looking at it, I was just like, I am so small, <laughs> and that thing is so huge. It had caused me to wonder and to marvel. I was just, I was just like, I've never, I mean, I've seen it from an airplane, you know, flying, and you, sometimes you see it in the atmosphere and stuff. Never been underneath one like that. It just, it blew my mind. Well, what John sees here, it's, it's like that. It causes that emotion in, in him. What is the mo- what, what, what's causing him to stop and marvel? These seven angels, you know, these seven angels and seven last plagues. John's seen a lot of angels now. These aren't the same angels as he's seen prior to things. But, but he's seen a lot of angels. So that shouldn't necessarily have caused him to marvel and to wonder. But I think what caused him to stop and marvel is what it says there. For in them, the wrath of God is complete. The wrath of God. That word comes from, uh, the word is thuo, and it means passion in the sense of breathing hard. Like, you know, just, uh, you know, it's, it's a violent motion or a passion of the mind. We, we call it anger, wrath, or indignation. Well, why would that cause John to, to stop and wonder? Well, you know, the Bible tells us that God is, he's slow to anger. He's patient. He's merciful. He's compassionate. And we've seen that in our own lives. God is so merciful towards us. But when God is righteously angry, man, that causes John's attention. That, that arrests his attention and he marvels at that. And it says, in them, in these, these angels, the seven plagues, or the wrath of God, is complete. That word complete is the word finished. It's, in fact, it's the same word that Jesus cried on the cross. It is finished. That whole sense of wrath being finished or completed, there's a picture of that back in Genesis. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you, but... 
Abraham, at this point he's known as Abram, God's revealing to Abram that he's going to make a nation out of Abram. And, he, and, he's, and he's in chapter 15 of Genesis, he's, he's going to cut a covenant with, with Abraham. So he has Abraham get all these animals, and then, and then he's going to cut this covenant, and uh, Abraham thinks he's going to do it, but he ends up falling asleep, and, 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 and he has this vision, and, and the Lord God actually cuts the covenant with um, Abraham. And in verse 13, the Lord speaks to Abram. It says, Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. And then the Lord says this in verse 16. But in the fourth generation they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So for 400 years God was patient with the inhabitants of Canaan. And if you know anything about the Canaanites, they practiced sexual perversion of the worst kinds in their culture. They were involved with human sacrifice. Uh, They sacrificed the most innocent, defenseless in their societies, the babies. Well, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it, in our culture? In their culture, babies were burned alive to the idol Moloch. They were literally set on an, on a burning idol and they were literally burned to death in front of their parents as an offering to Molech. Not only that, but they've actually, un, they've actually excavated uh, 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 buildings from that era that had uh, bones of babies. And, and what they discovered was that the, the, the Canaanites, to another, another sacrifice they would do is they would entomb their infants alive in the walls of their house. And the, the, the babies would die. You know, they'd be crying. And so it was an offering. I mean, this was so wicked, this, this, uh, this culture. And God gave them 400 years to repent. But at the 400, at, after 400 years, God instructed the children of Israel, led by Joshua, we'll see that in the book of Exodus, to be his instrument of wrath against the Canaanites because the wrath was complete. It's like, this is it. There's, there's no more. It, it, that's it. And, and so that's the sense that we're seeing here in, uh, in chapter uh, 15. These seven angels are going to be the instruments of God's wrath on a wicked and perverse Christ-rejecting world. You know, you and I, we look at, we, we, we measure time chronologically, right? We measure days and years and months and seasons and stuff. God doesn't measure time that way. God measures time morally. And the time is up for the inhabitants on the earth at this point. So we'll see. Verse 2. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. There's something, he says, like a sea of glass mingled with fire. Well, we saw something similar to that in Revelation chapter 4. Remember, uh, John's, he sees before the throne there was a sea of glass and he said it was like crystal. 
And we talked about that when we were in chapter 4, that, that that speaks of calmness and tranquility. I don't know if you've ever been on a, on a lake or on, a, on, an, on, on the ocean, even on the ocean sometimes, when it's just flat as, and it's just like glass. It's, it's a beautiful time to be on the water when it's like that. It speaks of calmness and tranquility. And, and in Revelation chapter 4, John says it, it was like crystal. Now, we don't really know exactly what he was referring to, but if you think of it, it kind of speaks of clarity and purity. And remember, this is before the throne, and so what it seems to be indicating is that it was reflecting the holiness, the purity of God there in chapter 4. Well, the sea of glass, which might very well be the same glass, sea of glass that he sees here in chapter 15, he doesn't say it's like crystal. He says it's mingled with fire. And again, that speaks of the sea of glass, speaks of calmness and tranquility. But the fact that it's mingled with fire, it almost seems to indicate that, it, that it's reflecting judgment. Because fire is an indication of judgment in the Bible. And so it seems like it's reflecting the judgment of God that's about to occur here. Now it could also be emblematic of something else. In the Old Testament, again, remember this: the the the, the old. This is such an Old Testament. You know, there's so many references to the Old Testament in the Old Testament in the tabernacle and also in the temple. They had a temp, They had what was known as the sea there at the at the tabernacle and temple. And what it was, it was a large bronze laver filled with water. And that water was for the cleansing of the priests before they entered the temple. They would ceremonially cleanse themselves before they entered in to serve in the temple. And, you know, water throughout scriptures is a reference, it's a picture of the word of God. And just as uh, these you know, these priests would, would wash themselves with the water before they entered the temple. You and I, we're told to wash with the water of the word, right? The word washes us. The word of God washes us. So it says here that those who have victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, stand, they're standing there on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Well, who are these people? Well, they're tribulation saints. Why do you say that? Well, because they had victory over the beast. This is the second half of the tribulation when, when he requires everybody to receive a mark. He wants everybody to worship him. And, uh, and these have not done that. They did not worship the beast. They did not worship his image. They did not receive his mark. And they were martyred as a result of, of, of that. You know, on earth, they were considered losers. They were the enemies, but in heaven here, they're victorious. And so John sees these, these tribulation saints standing, so to speak, on this sea, which I think is a picture of the word of God. There's, so it's almost like there's a symbolism here of them standing on the word of God, standing on God's faithfulness, first of all, to resurrect them to eternal life, but also his faithfulness to avenge their blood. Now, if you have an NIV translation, it says that they were standing by the sea. And I think that's an unfortunate translation. Uh, maybe the translators, you know, it made more sense. I mean, how can they be standing on the sea? But remember, this isn't necessarily the sea, because John says it was something like a sea of glass. So, so we continue on here, verse 3. 
They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. So they're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, and people are divided. Does that mean, you know, there's two different songs that they're singing, or is it one song that's known as the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb? Uh, I don't really know, and I think most people, most commentaries don't know either, although they probably have opinions. So is it one or two songs? Beats me. And if you look at the songs of Moses, and there are songs of Moses in, in the Old Testament, Exodus 15 was a song of Moses. Deuteronomy 32 is another song of Moses. And we even have a psalm of Moses in, in Psalm 90, where he, it's a prayer of Moses. But the words that we're reading here, they're not, it's not like you can go to the Old Testament and find it and go, oh, well, there it is right there. They're not taken directly out of what we know of the songs of Moses. But I think, this is my opinion, it most likely reflects the song of Moses in Exodus 15. In Exodus 14, prior to, you know know the story of Exodus, uh, the song of Moses. Moses had delivered the children of Israel or led them out from Egyptian captivity and and they were there traveling and they came up to the edge of the red sea and then and then pharaoh changed his mind and he and his armies came to get them and bring them back to egypt and there they are they're 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 boxed in where where they were at and uh so the people are crying out and and moses is crying out to the lord in exodus 14 verse 13 you know, God had spoken to Moses, and Moses said to the people, he says, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. And then he instructed, the Lord instructed Moses, you know you know the story, you've seen the Ten Commandments, or maybe you've read it in Sunday school or whatever, you, you know the, the Red Sea parted. And the, the, the children of Israel were able to pass on dry ground to escape the Egyptians. And then the Egyptians followed in after them. And then God frustrated them. The wheels of their chariots started coming off in the middle. And then all of a sudden, God instructed Moses to, to uh, set a staff out, you know, pointed at the water. And, the, and it all came back. And uh, the Egyptians drowned. And so at the on the shore there of the Red Sea there in Exodus 15... Moses composes a song, and it's a song of deliverance from the enemies, the Egyptians. As far as the song of the Lamb, well, we saw an allusion to them, or we saw the song of the Lamb in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7. You know, what amazes me about this passage here is that these who are singing the song, they previously rejected Christ, if you think about it. Because before the rapture of the church, they weren't Christians. They didn't have faith in Christ. It was only after the tribulation began. And so, because these are the tribulation saints, because the church is in heaven at this point. So at some point during the tribulation, at some point, they received Jesus Christ into their heart 
is Savior and Lord. And then when the, when the Antichrist and the false prophet are, are forcing and compelling everybody to worship, they don't worship the beast or his image. They don't receive his mark. And so if you think about it, at that point, what can they do? Because you know that if, if they don't receive, if people don't receive the image, they're unable to purchase. They're unable to buy or sell. So these people that at first rejected Christ, now they've, now they've accepted Christ during the tribulation, they're not even able to purchase the most basic necessities of life, let alone any luxuries. They can't even purchase bread or milk or anything because you can't buy or sell anything without the mark, and they don't have the mark. Not only that, they would have no way to earn any kind of living because you know the, that whole system is going to be tied in together. You, you, they would be hated as nonconformists. Not only that, but they would have been hunted down by the Antichrist. And depending on when they were martyred for their faith, who knows if it was you know months, years, days, whatever, they would have endured at least portion, some aspect of the tribulation period. And we know that that's a very, a very difficult time for anybody to be alive during that time. There's unnatural phenomena occurring during those seven years. And so the world looks at those people and they would be considered losers by the world's standard. But think about you and I here this morning. All the external things that we enjoy. We, we earn a living. We can go to the store. Maybe we don't have a lot of money, but we can go to the store and buy bread and milk. You know, we, we can get at least the basic necessities uh, provided for us. We can enjoy those things. They couldn't enjoy any of that. None of that after they received Christ in their hearts during this time. And yet here they are in heaven and they've got joy in their hearts and praise on their lips. And what's fascinating is I've been studying through Revelation. There's a lot of singing in Revelation, isn't there? A lot of singing. There's not so much singing here on earth. There's a lot of singing in heaven. Think about you and think about me. We're enjoying, even this morning, so much that those tribulation saints won't have access to in their lives after they accept Christ. It's a different world for them completely. And, and, and think of us here today. There is so many things that we and I, that we enjoy together. I mean, God blesses us over and over and over again. And yet, you know, so many of us walk around down in the mouth. We don't have joy. And we, we have so much more than those tribulation saints will have. And they're full of joy. These saints had nothing, and in the end they're murdered, and yet they have joy. You know, if you are not one who's given to praising the Lord, singing praises to the Lord, and I'm not talking about just here. I think it's important when we're here gathered together that, that we do sing and we do worship the Lord. And maybe you don't have a good voice, but you know what? We're all here to make a joyful noise, right? That doesn't matter. Um, but, and I'm not just talking about here in church, but even in your time alone, during the day with the Lord, whenever you're, do you ever, do you ever just sing praises to him or worship him? In those, in those ways? Because if, if that's, if you go, well, not really. When you get to heaven, you're going to be like a fish out of water because that's all it takes. That's all that happens up there is this praise and worship. And, you know, it's just, it's amazing. Music all the time up there. So let me ask you this. Are you a joyful Christian this morning? 
Now, I'm not talking about a fake joyful Christian. You've met them before, right? You, you meet them, you go, hey, brother, how you doing? Oh, hallelujah, brother, I'm doing great, praise God. You know, and, they, and that's all they talk about, praise. You know, and I'm not saying we're not to say that or talk, if, if you talk that way. I don't think anybody here does that. You know, it's okay. But, but you know what I'm talking about. You can tell a fake person that's faking that joy of the Lord. But are you a joyful Christian, not a fake, but an authentic, contagiously joyful believer? Because I tell you what, joy is contagious. It really is. Authentic joy is contagious. Or are you maybe you're bitter about something. Maybe you don't have what other people have, whether it's a house, you know, some kind of possessions or a relationship, you know, uh, or whatever. You don't have what other believers have, and, and that's made you bitter. It's like, Lord, why haven't you given me that? Or on the other side, maybe you have something that everybody doesn't have and you're bitter about it. You know, maybe you're dealing with something. You've got some ailment or you've got some some issue that you're always dealing with and you look around you and every other person here in the church, they don't have it. You're the only one dealing with this. And you go, Lord, why me? And in either case, you can be bitter about that. Well, listen, don't allow a root of bitterness to lodge in your heart. Don't allow it to lodge in your heart. And you might say, well, that's easy for you to say, but, but I've, <laughs> I've already lost my joy and I'm already bitter. So what do I do about it? Well, I've got a few scriptures I want to share with you. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You can, you can get rid of that root of bitterness by being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brethren... Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Don't meditate on what you don't have. Meditate on what you do have. Meditate on what the Lord has blessed you with. And I, I like this a couple verses earlier, Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You know, it's, it's amazing what just starting to thank the Lord, starting to reflect on what the Lord's done and what, how he's blessed you, start thanking him for it. It can really lift you out of the blues. It really can. When you start realizing, Lord, you have blessed me so much. And you know, you, you look around, you can always find someone that has a worse situation than you, right? But even if you think, well, I look around and nobody's got it as bad as me, you can start thanking the Lord for what you do have. And, and it's a, it'll transform your heart. It'll transform your mind. So there is a way to get that root of bitterness out of your heart. And these are the ways. And so these tribulation saints... They've gone through this terrible time and they're singing here, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. You see, when God pours out his wrath in chapter 16 and when we get to that, it's terrible. It's terrible. And as terrible as it is, he is just in doling it out. He is just in, in, in pouring out his wrath. And we'll, we'll talk about that when we get into chapter 16. So they say, Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. 
You know, and that's such an important thing to remember because we can lose sight of the book of Revelation. The book of the Revelation, or book of Revelation, excuse me, it's not the book of the Antichrist, although he's mentioned in there. It's not the book of the Antichrist. It's not the book of the Tribulation, although many chapters, right, chapters 4 through 19 are deal with the Tribulation. It's not the book of the Battle of Armageddon. A lot of people, oh, the Battle of Armageddon's in there, although it is. It's even not the book of Revelations. Have you had people say that to you? The book of Revelations. No, 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 no. There's only one Revelation. It's not even a book of prophecy. Well, it is, but it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's the focus of revelation. And so they say, verse 4, Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. You see, in heaven, it seems incredulous to the heavenly hosts, to the angels, to the living creatures, and even the saints that are in heaven, that anyone would not fear the Lord. What am I talking about? Fear. I'm talking about reverence, respect for the Lord. They are amazed that you and I, that people on earth don't fear the Lord. It just It's like, how could they not fear the Lord? And during the tribulation, there's going to be a lot of fearful things occurring. Even angels, we talked about in chapter 14, they are going to be flying through the atmosphere, literally sharing the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the coming wrath of God. And those people that hear it, many of them, probably the majority of them, they don't fear the Lord. Look at our generation today. Man, in our own lifetime, the fear of the Lord has diminished in culture big time. Big time. You, you see it all. It's Remember what it was like when you were a youngster. Some of you can, maybe it's too far back. You can't remember that. I don't know. But <laughs> for some of you, it's not that far back. But, but remember when you were youngsters, the fear of the Lord, I mean, sin was always there, right? People sin. But, but there was a level of fear of the Lord, a respect, a reverence for, for the things of the Lord that today it's, it's, it's evaporating. I would say it's even among the church that the fear of the Lord has, has diminished. A lot of people are saying, the Lord's my buddy, you know, he's my buddy. And, and some of their worship kind of reflects it, you know. It's like, it's not that reverence and awe of the Lord. It's just, hey, he's my friend, you know. Jesus is all right, <laughs> you know. The fear of the Lord. The Bible has a lot to say about the fear of the Lord. In fact, most of it's in Proverbs. I pulled these out of, out of Proverbs. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord prolongs days. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. And the fear of the Lord leads to life. You know, when you have the fear of the Lord, it's like it just changes the way you live your life. And I think we need more fear, more reverence, and more respect of the Lord. And then they cry out in verse 4, or they sing in verse 4, For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Now, 
the nations are not worshiping the Lord right now, okay? Uh, it's certainly not happening now. It's certainly not even happening during the tribulation. These saints, they're prophesying the millennial reign of Christ, which will be happening shortly, chronologically, from where we're at here in the book of Revelation. They're prophesying the millennial reign of Christ on the earth when all nations will come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And we'll get a glimpse of that and we'll deal with it when we get to chapter 20. Verse 5, After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. So the earthly tabernacle, and then later the first and second temples, they were made according to the pattern that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. You know, when Moses came down with the Ten Commandments, it wouldn't have been too curious to see him have like blueprints on the other side because you know somehow he remembered or you know he had he knew what the pattern of the tabernacle and the and what the temple later on with the temple would would look like because god showed him and it was a we find out in hebrews 8 that's a copy and shadow of the temple that's in heaven so this temple that john is seeing is the real mccoy everything else was a copy he's seeing the real mccoy here in verse 5 in heaven and I want to share kind of an interesting thing regarding the word temple in Revelation. Did you know that it occurs 16 times in the book of Revelation, the word temple? It occurs once during the church age that's described in chapters 2 and 3, and it occurs 15 times from chapters 4 to chapters 22. Why is that? Well, that's because after chapter 3, the rest of the book of Revelation deals with the seven-year tribulation. All those chapters are dealing with just a seven-year chunk of time. That seven-year tribulation, it's known as the 70th week of Daniel. It's called also the time of Jacob's trouble. It's when God is once more dealing with the nation of Israel. And of course, Israel had a temple. So that's why it's all, and we get to the back of the book of Revelation after the church age, that's all it talks about is a temple. And on the flip side of that, the word church or the word churches occurs 20 times in Revelation. It occurs only once in the closing remarks of chapter 22, and it occurs 19 times in chapters 1 through 3. Why is that? Because after chapter 3, the church has been raptured to heaven. Everything from then on described on the earth in the book of Revelation involves the Jews and, of course, also the tribulation saints. The church, during this time that we're we're reading about all this stuff, we're going to be, because if we're the church here this morning, we're going to be at the judgment seat of Christ while all this is taking place during this time period. Another interesting thing that I that just jumped out at me when I was studying in chapter 13. In chapters 1 through 3, this phrase is repeated over and over and over again. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We don't hear that anymore after chapter 3. But we get to chapter 13, verse 9, and it says, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. There's no mention of the church. Again, why? Because the church is raptured out of this. You know, you go, you're kind of stressing this. You're kind of, you're kind of over, you know, overdoing the point here. You're beating a dead horse. There's a reason why I'm doing that. And I think it's an important reason. Because there's three other, there's, people say there's three other, one of three things. Either they say 
the church is going to go through the entire tribulation. That's one belief that, that Christians hold. They're not, they're not heretics, but they're Christians. They believe that the church is going to go through the entire tribulation. There's others that say that the church will go through a portion of the tribulation. They'll be raptured midway through, pre-wrath rapture. There's another group, and the, again, these are Christians. There's another group of Christians that say this is an allegory. The tribulation is an allegory of past historical events. It all occurred before. I think all three of those are, are in error. And I, and I think there's a lot of scripture, like I was mentioning what it, those verses before, the words of the churches and temple. I, I think it's an error. I think the church will be uh, raptured out uh, prior to the start of the tribulation. So it's important. That's why I'm stressing this. Verse 6. And out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Now, if you have a King James Version Bible, it says that they had seven vials full of the wrath of God. A vial. You know, when I think of a vial, it's a, it's a container that is taller than it is wide, right? It's, it's, it's tall with a narrow mouth. I, you know, you almost can't think of like a test tube or, or a medicine bottle or, or even better yet, a perfume bottle. And uh, what happens? I'm going to go to the next slide if you can. Or... Did we miss one? Is there one before that? Ah, wouldn't you know it? Okay, you can go back. That's all right. This looks like my slide presentation got a little messed up. And... Joel does a real good job with these slides, <laughs> so it's, it's not his fault. I must have lost my slide in here. I had a slide that you could have seen of a medicine or a perfume bottle, and it, you know it's it's tall and it's got a little opening at the top. And probably the reason why they do that is because when you go to pour out perfume, you don't want you don't want to get uh, some people wear perfume like they splash the whole thing, they empty the bottle out on them. But generally, you just want a little bit, right? a, little, a little bit on your whatever, however they do that stuff. You know, I used to watch my mom do that, you know, kind of stuff like that. You know, it's just a little bit, right? You pour it out and it goes out slowly. In fact, you know, you have to get the air to kind of come in there for it to just keep pulling, you know, boop, 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 you know, because it's just got such a narrow opening. But that's not what this is describing. The word is file. I don't know if I'm pronouncing fiale, I guess maybe is a better word to describe it. And it means a broad, shallow bowl or a deep saucer. And that's why the New King James translated its bowls. And, and so you get an idea from the image there on the screen there. It's, 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 it's wide and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's wider than it is deep. Where a vial, I would think, would be deeper than it's wide. But anyways, why am I stressing this again? There's a point in that. Because when we read about the bowls of God's wrath being poured out in succession in chapter 16, when we get there, they're poured out fast. In quick succession, and I also think at the very end of the Great Tribulation. And the reason why is because the nature and the severity of the bowl judgments, as we'll see, are so terrible that all life on the planet will not be able to survive very long uh, once those are poured out. In fact, Jesus, speaking about it, Matthew 24, said, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. It's going to be that severe. That, and so that's why they just pour it out, and it, it's, it's, it's all at once almost, you know, 
each bowl, of course, but fast with quick succession. And I also think very at the very end of the Great Tribulation, and we'll, we'll talk about that when we get into chapter 16. Our final verse here, verse 8. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. There's several references to the glory, to this glory of God in the Old Testament. Going back to Moses in Exodus 40, verses 30, uh, 34 and 35, after they've erected the tabernacle according to the pattern that God had gave them, it says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This glory of the Lord, this cloud of God's glory, you know that it led the children of Israel during the daytime, right? Through the wilderness during the day. They, they watched that cloud and as they just stayed basically under the cloud and, and, and just wherever the cloud went, they went and they were led that way. At night, it was a pillar of fire. Uh, it would lead them, but I think a lot of times they were camped at night, but it provided illumination. It provided warmth for them. That's that same glory that we're talking about. In Solomon's day, after the temple was dedicated, in 1 Kings 8, verse 10, it says, And it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. That glory, it's called the, the kabod, glory of the Lord. It's, it's weighty, it's heavy. It's, it's, it's also referred to as the Shekinah or Shekinah, glory of the Lord. That word doesn't occur in the Bible. I, I looked, I couldn't find it. It's from rabbinic sources. Uh, but it talks about, it, it, what it means is referring to as the divine presence of the Lord. And so this is that cloud, this, this glory, this divine presence of the, of the Lord. It, it, it fills the temple there in heaven and it says no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. You go, hmm, I wonder what, well, why, why is that? Well, I think there's two ways to look at it. And, and actually, I don't think they're two, I don't think they're opposed ways. I think they both fit. And I think they both apply. They're both accurate. First way to look at it. Remember, Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You know, Philip said, show us the Father, that'd be enough for us. Jesus said, Philip, how long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we know what the Father looks like. We know the characteristics of the Father by looking at Jesus. Well, when Jesus went from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he cried out in Luke 13, verse 34, says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her broods under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate, and assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." The Lord was grieving. He was weeping over Jerusalem because they refused him as the Messiah. The Lord God says, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So, so here's one of the, uh, the, one of the ways 
you know, it, it kept this, this, the smoke filling the temple and no one's able to enter the temple. It's because God is suffering. He's grieving over the fact that he's got to pour out this wrath on the world because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so God is suffering alone during this final outpouring of his wrath. He's non-consolable at this time. He doesn't want anybody in there. It's just him. And, and I think that's a, that's a pretty accurate picture. There's a second explanation, and I think this also fits. The only purpose for priests to be in the temple was to perform the sacrifices and perform the work of being an intermediate between God and man. And so during this final outpouring of his wrath on the wicked, there's no more need for a priest to be in there because there's no more opportunity for repentance. God doesn't pour out, and we talked about this last week, God doesn't pour out his full, undiluted wrath until he knows there's no more hope, that there's no one more, because there are going to be people repenting and coming to faith during the tribulation, but at this point, God knows there's, there's nobody, there's not a single soul left on the planet that's going to repent. And so at this point, there's no need for an intercessor. There's no need for a priest. And so nobody can enter the temple. He's going to pour out his wrath at this point. You might say, well, wait a minute. If you've read ahead, maybe you say, wait a minute. Chapter 16, it says in chapter 16, three different times, it says, first it says they did not repent and give him the glory. Why does it say that? If they didn't have an opportunity to repent, why do we even why do we even read they didn't repent and give him glory? Later on it says they did not repent of their deeds. And then finally it says men blaspheme God. Do they do they still have an opportunity to repent in chapter 16? And and there's different opinions about this. Or is the fact that they still will not repent during the final plagues that it vindicates God's judgment? and proves that he's just and righteous in what he's doing. And I think in the context of verse 8 and chapter 15, I think, I think it's the latter. I think it's just, it's, it's just proof that, that nobody will repent. Nobody would repent. We're going to have communion this morning, and if the worship team wants to come up, why are we celebrating communion? Well, we know that, you know, the... The bread, or in this case the cracker, and the, and the wine, or in this case is the juice, represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It was, you know, he died on the cross for our sins. You know, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was, Jesus was agonizing, crying. He was sweat drops, you know, drops of blood, sweating, just agonizing over what was to take place. And one of the points when he was crying out to the Lord and praying, he said, Lord, if it's at all possible, let this cup pass from me. What? The cup of suffering. The cup of being forsaken by the Father, being rejected by God the Father. That cup, which is the cup that you and I should have drank, because we all deserve God's wrath. He took it undiluted for us, so that you and I would never drink that cup. We would never drink the cup of God's wrath. We've not been appointed for wrath. He took it undiluted for us. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did that because you and I never have to cry that out. God will never forsake you. He'll never leave you. Because he loves you that much. And so that's what communion is. We're remembering what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We're thanking him 
for that sacrifice that He made for us. Why don't we pray and then we'll we'll, uh, start with communion. Heavenly Father, I thank You this morning for Your Word. Lord, it's a heavy chapter to read and it's going to be even a heavier chapter next week, Lord, when when, when the wrath is poured out, Your wrath undiluted on a, on a Christ-rejecting world that there's no more repentance and people are just blaspheming you as, as your wrath is being poured out. Lord, I thank you so much that you saved each one of us here, Lord. And I, I trust, Lord, I'm, I'm assuming, but I don't know that everybody here has a relationship with you. Lord, you know every each and every heart here this morning. You know whether people have put their trust in you for their salvation. And this morning, if there's anybody here that, that has not taken that step to repent of their sins, to recognize that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and that he rose again from the dead, that even now they might repent of their sins and put their trust in you for their salvation, Lord. I thank you that we are able to do that, Lord. I thank you that you've blessed us with so many things, Lord. You, you've blessed us so much, Lord. And, and, and above all, above anything else, Lord, you've blessed us with the gift of your son, Jesus, who took our punishment on the cross for us. So we thank you for the cross, Lord. We thank you for your sacrifice for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.